Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone, and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So uh, today we have a founder from Europe, uh, and I think that we're going to be learning a lot about uh, marketplaces, uh, car sharing, and and all of that good stuff. So I guess without further ado, I'd like to welcome our uh, guest today, Frederic Matzella from Blah Blah Car. Welcome to the show today. Hello, welcome, uh, welcome you too. All righty, Frederick, I want to start by doing a little bit of a walk through memory lane here. Uh, and I believe you were originally born and raised in Nantes. Is that right? I was born in Nantes uh, and I was um, raised later on in Vendée, which is pretty close from Nantes, but it's uh, on the Atlantic coast in France, in the middle of France. And how was life growing up there? Oh, fantastic. It's a countryside. Uh, so it's all green everywhere. Lots of... Uh, Lots of animals everywhere, um, and uh, yeah, quiet uh, life, but uh, quality life. Very cool. Not the type of quality that you get in New York City, but uh, but anyhow, anyhow, wow. that's less concrete. <laughs> that's it. That's it. So, so I want to ask you. There is same. You know, I find really, really interesting on on your background. So you have this love for physics, this love for music as well. Uh, but I think that everything started with uh, playing the piano. So, so tell us, like, how you, did you develop this love for music? Ah, oh, so um, no, yeah, I play the piano, also play the violin, and uh, also the guitar and the battery. When, uh, well, the, the drums when I was uh, sixteen and I had long hair. But, um, but yeah, I mainly played the piano, and that's the reason why I moved to Paris initially because I wanted to continue at the uh, conservatory in Paris. Uh, which I did for a few years while uh, still studying mathematics and physics a lot. Uh, at the beginning, I wanted to... Actually, I came to Paris because I wanted to become a piano player, a professional piano player. And uh, finally, I was in love with math and I continued to, to do math, uh, thinking that I, if I wanted to do math, mathematics, it was uh, at this moment and I could come back to music later on. And uh, whereas if I was switching for music, right at this moment, I would not do mathematics later on. So I chose the mathematics path. Got it. And I remember that people like Steve Jobs say that uh, some of the best engineers and, and, and really people in the, in the entrepreneurial world that he came across were, were people that had the background in, in, in music. Like they play at an instrument or something like that. You know, the level of, creativ of creativity was 
really incredible. So, so how how would you say what were you, what what would be your thoughts on that? I would say it. The first thing, the most obvious thing it brings is rigor. I mean, um, you are you have to be ultra uh, rigorous when you play an instrument because any uh, sort of mistake can be listened. I mean, you have a feedback loop, which is pretty fast. <laughs> so right. If you don't play well, then you hear it instantaneously. And uh, and it brings creativity as well, because um, by by essence, by definition, uh, instruments are uh, tools which are made for being creative and um, in a world which is a world of sounds. And so, yeah, I would say it brings rigor and creativity. Got it. And why physics? What got you into physics? Um, it is a part of the mathematics which deals with the real world. So it's a, it's a way to understand um, the, the, the world we have around us uh, with uh, mathematics formulas. And, um, well, I just love it because to me it's a, it's a link between the real world and the uh, analytical and, and, and the theoretical world of uh, mathematics. So it's the link between. So you were doing physics, and then uh, I want to know, like, what changed? I mean, I, you came here to the U.S. You were you were doing uh, the internship in Stanford, but I, I want to understand, like, what did you did you find like the environment there in 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 California like really different uh, from what you were used to in let's say in in France, like you know the way they were viewing business and 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 entrepreneurship and things like that. Like, what, what did you learn from your experience there? I learned that uh, entrepreneurship was a possible path, uh, which um, nobody had really taught me at the time. Uh, because the, um, uh, the studies uh, that you can do, even in, in very, very good schools everywhere, they just uh, you are under the impression that you are being uh, formed to go join uh, uh, projects which already exist, uh, or you can do research, or you can join a large company and you can do lots of things, and you can do business, or you can do uh, science. But um, uh, they, they teach you that you'll join something bigger than you. Yeah. And um, and when I was uh, studying at Stanford, you know, it was just a, the moment where. Uh, Larry Page and Sergey Brin uh, were leaving campus in Stanford to uh, to found Google, and um, and there there were lots of people also joining Google uh, from Stanford, uh, and you know not even finishing their masters or their PhD and just joining startups. Not only Google but some others as well. Okay. And I was like, wow! So it is possible to not finish your diploma, <laughs> is it? <laughs> and, and to go join a startup like this? Right. What what kind of of uh, career is that? And uh, it was really fun to to think that actually entrepreneurship and founding a company and and even not finishing your studies for this was even possible and made by uh, very smart people which were around and and so it was a possibility. That's that's what it brought to me. That uh, it opened the possibility of entrepreneurship. And I understand that right after this, you became a research assistant for a couple of. Um... Of entities, one of them being NASA. So, so what were you doing at NASA? Yeah, it was at the same moment. It was the same moment. Actually, I began by being a research assistant for NASA and, and Stanford, okay. and um, and then I studied the, the, my master's degree in computer science at Stanford. Okay, uh, but it was the same uh, same period for three years. Got it. So then, 
So then once you were exposed to entrepreneurship, why did you decide to, to join a business uh, more as an employee? Uh, maybe I was not ready enough. I had lots of ideas and, you know, I think I had uh, 25 ideas before having the blah, blah car ID. Uh, and I, I didn't feel they were powerful enough. Uh, and it's only when I got the idea of uh, blah, blah, car that I said, okay, this one is really, really powerful. It's really dangerous because, uh, either it works and everybody knows about the service and uses it or it doesn't. And then, uh, it's, it's all or nothing, yeah. but I like this uh, challenge, um, because, uh, if it, if it was working, then it would be big. And today, you know, well, well we launched uh, in France, so like uh, now a long time ago, but uh, today it's um, half of the population in France in the age range 18 to 25 who are using us. So the penetration rate is more than 50%. Very cool. Of the population. So it's really, really uh, working well. And then, so we've got 75 million members in, in 22 countries. So it's, beginning to be sort of massive and and we'll talk about the you know blah blah car in detail uh, but I want to ask you there what what does say and you've made a lot of investments too so what what do um, powerful ideas look like uh, it's something that prevents you from sleeping <laughs> <laughs> as simple as that you know when I got the idea I didn't sleep for 72 hours wow I was so excited I was like Oh my God, this is big. So let, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the moment where uh, in December of 2003, you came across, you know, a, a frustration and uh, that started to incubate this, this idea. What happened? Well, yeah, I wanted to uh, go back to Vendée from Paris. Uh, it was Christmas time and I was super, super late in uh, booking a train ticket. And uh, so in the end, I had to call my little sister who was living uh, close to Paris and I asked her if she could come and pick me up in Paris and bring me in Vendée with her car, which uh, she did. And then on the highway, um, I saw the trains, you know, the TGVs in France. Um, you can see from the highway, you can see the trains sometimes uh, like going like uh, faster than you. And so I saw yeah. a train and I was like, ah, okay, so this is a train uh, in which I could not get a train ticket because everything was sold out. Uh, it was full. And then at the same time, yeah. I was looking at the road and I was seeing all the cars empty. And I was like, oh my God, oh my God. The empty seats were available, but they were not in trains. They were all in cars. And I got one in my sister's car, but there are like thousands or millions of empty cars, empty seats in cars. And, and no one has ever indexed them. We, you can't look for them in search engines and so why is that? And it, it seems so simple to me that we should just place all the available seats in a database and put a search engine on it so that people who are trying to move around can benefit from the empty seats in cars. Um, that I was, okay, this is such a simple idea. Why, uh, why it doesn't exist already? What's, what's the problem? And then, uh, so I spent 72 hours trying to find the problem, trying to find why it did not exist. And, um, and then in the end, since I didn't find why it did not exist, I said, okay, so it, it has to exist. It will exist. And uh, this thing will happen. So 
let's make it let's build it so then what happened what happened immediately after what were some of the steps that you took after the 72 hours yeah uh, i think i got some sleep at some point <laughs> but <Okay>. um, <laughs> no but right after i began coding okay i began coding like directly got it uh, and then you purchased the the domain that someone else had so yeah i purchased the domain name which was uh, easier to uh, to understand for the concept Okay. Uh, but then the, the uh, all the engine and the logics uh, were the code I had developed and that I placed on this URL. Got it. Because the URL, uh, the the translation of the URL is carpooling, right? Yeah, it's the equivalent of carpooling in French. Yeah. Got it. I, so, I got it. so then my question here is: so you started to develop this, and and why did you decide that it was time to do your your MBA at INSEAD rather than you know continuing pushing on the idea? Uh, because uh, I had a very scientific background, um, engineering background, and um, I thought that I was not equipped enough for building a company. And I was like, so how, uh, who can help me in, in understanding how you build a company? And it's the way I found. And also another reason, four years, I, I had in my mind that at some point I would do an MBA. I said, okay, this would be uh, good for me in in my uh, studies to to after doing lots of science to go and study business. So it was somewhere in my mind, and it was bothering me as well. So uh, the fact that I I wanted to do that, and so I said, okay, so now let's do it, uh, so that uh, in a year from now uh, I I don't have this in my mind anymore that I have to do that. So I will do that now. And uh, by the way, it's very useful because I will learn business and it helped me build the company. Got it. And so I did the MBA, which was a tremendous experience. I have only two regrets uh, for, uh, regarding INSEAD. The first one is that uh, I cannot do it uh, twice. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And the second one is that I should have done it earlier. Got it. Um, it, it was it was fantastic. Why do you think yeah. you should have done it earlier? Because you really needed that that skill set, that business mentality. Maybe yeah, maybe maybe one or two years before, I could have done it two years before. I think it was an accelerator for me to understand um, uh, how you really build uh, a project and a company, because you do so many um, case studies and you meet so many as well entrepreneurs. Uh, Insead is really uh, uh, focused on entrepreneurs as well. You have lots of them going on campus makes sense yeah the network is uh, is definitely critical but i mean we're talking here you came up with the idea in 2003 and you finally brought it to light walk us through that <laughs> yeah i had i began coding in 2004 it was coding it was coded and available in 2005 um and then it, it began to have some members uh, then in 2006 i think we had 20,000 members in 2007, I was at INSEAD, and we had, uh, by the end of the year, I think I had uh, 80,000 members. Um, I had initially uh, coded the first version uh, of the service with uh, my very good friend, uh, Damien. Uh, so we were uh, two at the time on the company. Uh, and, and then uh, later on in 2006, uh, I met Francis, uh, who then later on became uh, the CTO. Um, and then in 2007, I met uh, Nicolas at uh, INSEAD. 
but the project was uh, already launched and I already had members and people were already carpooling with, uh, with the service and the company was already incorporated. Um, and then uh, in 2008, right after INSEAD, I decided to uh, simply uh, do uh, BlaBlaCar full-time. The name of the project at the moment was uh, Commuto. It was not BlaBlaCar. And then I decided to go absolutely full-time on it right after INSEAD, which was not that easy because I still had a, a loan to reimburse. Um, I had taken a 70k uh, euros loan to, uh, to do INSEAD. And I reimbursed it in seven years. Uh, so then, yeah, no, the project was already running. Uh, I did the uh, business venture competition at INSEAD. I did it twice. Uh, the first time I arrived number four in uh, 30 projects, roughly. And the second time uh, I arrived first, um, which gave me a, a bit of money as well. So I think it was uh, five or 10,000 uh, euros to help the um, to help as well building the, the thing. At the time, I had not raised that much money. It was just my money plus Damien. And, uh, and, um, and then in 2009, some other money came from uh, other friends. Got it. Because the, the business model then for, for the people that are listening, you know, mm -hmm. you finally uh, were operating fully with, the, with your co-founders, Francis and, and Nicolas. Mm -hmm. what, were, what was the business model so that the people that are listening get it? Yeah, so from uh, 2007 to 2011, the business model that we were doing was a B2B, uh, selling carpooling platforms to companies. Uh, it was not my initial idea. It was not uh, what I wanted to do. But the thing is, since uh, reaching critical mass and uh, reaching the C2C possibility of uh, a full marketplace like we have on BlaBlaCar today, uh, was taking a lot of time, and um, and, and the, the liquidity of the marketplace was not sufficient enough to anyway make any significant uh, revenue. So in the meantime, I had a strategy to sell um, carpool platforms to companies uh, on white labels to at least uh, make some money and feed the um, feed the, the the business and the team to actually build the big platform, the big C2C peer-to-peer uh, -peer platform. Got it. Uh, so it was a temporary business model. But in the meantime, then, um, I tried five other business models um, to finally reach the transactional business model, which we deployed in uh, 2011. Okay. Uh, but in between, we tried several others. Got it. So, yeah, uh, at, the, at that moment, from 2008 to 2011, we were selling B2B. Uh, at the time, Nico um, had been, uh, so we had been meeting at INSEAD, but then he went working four years at uh, Amadeus uh, Capital in, uh, in London. So he was working in the VC industry, and so he was seeing the company growing. Um, but he was working uh, full-time for, for a VC. And then in 2011, he decided to, uh, to join the project uh, initially half-time um, as COO and then full-time in 2012. When we raised some more money and then we decided to really go international with the concept which was working because uh, the six business model that I tried, which was a transactional business model we have today, where actually um, uh, a passenger will pay $25 and, or euros and then uh, we keep a commission of about 15-ish percent. Okay. And then um, the rest of the money goes to the driver, of course, to uh, compensate the, the cost. And so this business model was working and was... Um, 
it was allowing us to have revenues which were growing with the cost because uh, we had an exponential growth, so exponential cost, and we needed a business model that would go exponential as well. Uh, so revenues would grow exponentially with the cost. And this, is a, this was a transactional business model which allowed us to do so. Got it. Because normally to create liquidity in marketplaces and to get that supply and demand and the networking effects and that all good stuff, I mean, it takes money. So, so how much money have you guys raised uh, uh, to date? Well, it's a few hundred uh, millions, but the thing is, uh, the, the, it, it's not actually the, um, uh, it's not the same kind of money that you raise uh, depending on the growth phase you're in. At the very beginning, you build some money to, you, you, you raise money to build the product and to build your processes and to uh, optimize your growth path. Okay. And then you raise a lot more money to actually expand and use the best methods that you've learned uh, for uh, acquisition, for communication, to actually uh, grow faster. So uh, I would say at the beginning, uh, so I raised in several rounds, uh, at the beginning, uh, 600K, then 1.2 million. And then we raised 10 million in 2011, end of 2011, 2012, uh, beginning 2012, from Axel. And that uh, those 10 million were different uh, than the, uh, the the one million before. The one million before was to really uh, build our processes and find the right business model. Yeah. The ten million was to expand a bit internationally, and then we raised a hundred million, then another two hundred million for really international and global expansion. But then those numbers. So we we often talk about uh, the the amount company raise, but um, it's not the same capital. A seed capital or Series A capital is really not the same from the capital you raise in Series uh, B, C, D, uh, where it's more that you're raising money on a proven business model to to scale up. So then it can be a lot. But it, it only depends on your on the size of your market and uh, and of your ambition. Yeah. But then you can raise hundreds of millions after. It's not the same. Of course, of course. I guess the um, expectations are always different depending on the financing cycle in which in which you're at. So I guess as a whole for the business, how much capital has been reported that you guys have raised? Um, well, it's, it's around 400, uh, yeah. Around 400 million. And I've seen as well that um, over a billion in, in valuation. So so pretty good stuff. So I guess the um, the next question you know, that I want to ask you here is, what have you learned about marketplaces? Um, I have learned that uh, liquidity is hard to reach, uh, that you have to be very creative on the way you, you, reach, create, you reach liquidity. Um, you have to make sure demand and offer meet as early as possible. After when your brand is known and it's known in, in a like in many, many places, then liquidity kicks in. But at the beginning, it's really, really tough, you know. And, um, uh, for example, someone is proposing seats in their car from Paris to Nantes uh, tomorrow at 4 p.m. And then someone else is looking for a ride from Paris to Lille uh, in two days from now at 6 p.m. You have no way to make the match. Yeah. So and this happens like for uh, for four years uh, sometimes uh, until uh, you begin to have matches. Yeah. So I've learned this. I've learned that um, 
you have really um, uh, price dynamics which are very interesting. Uh, you see statistics at um, at work. It's really um, fascinating to see uh, uh, the way numbers are more predictable than than features uh, or than uh, emotions or or creativity. Uh, then once you you reach liquidity and your marketplace begin to work. You you reach the network effects, and then once you have network effects, uh, the more the marketplace works, the better it works. I mean, the more people you have in the um, in the service, the better it works. Um, and I guess when you are thinking about as well marketplaces, and you know the the question that is always there: profit profit versus growth. What are your thoughts on that? Oh, it's a choice. Um, it's a choice. It depends on the, where you are at, at your uh, in your growth. It depends also uh, on competition. Uh, if you have a bit more time because you have no competitor, then you can. Uh, it's also an issue, but you can go towards a profit path. If uh, and if, um, well, since our companies like lots of uh, companies like this um, on marketplaces grow by um, paying a lot to acquire new members and then uh, make the service work even better. Yeah. Uh, you choose how much you want to spend depending on the, how fast you want to scale. Right. So you have a control on this. So part of what you spend, basically the marketing spending, is, uh, the ref is a reflection of your ambition. If you want to scale uh, slower, then you reduce the amount of marketing you spend. If you want to scale faster, then you augment it. So then um, profit is a result of all this equilibrium, but then you have the possibility to either spend a lot or spend less in terms of, of growth. So it's really a choice. Absolutely. Uh, when, when, when the company is growing and working, it's a choice. If you want to be profitable, then you will slow your growth. If you want to grow faster, uh, then you'll spend more and you'll not be profitable. Got it, got it. So I guess the um, you know, you've been with the with this idea, you know, and and added since two thousand and three. So my yeah. question is, how have you seen the the ecosystem um in Europe, right, for for hyper growth companies develop, um, you know, over time? Um, it's it's been a tremendous uh, evolution. It's incredible. Uh, today the young generation. Uh, in France, want to create a company. Uh, ten years from now, it was not the case. Yeah, like the the brightest, uh, I would say the brightest people, the brightest students, wanted to join a big corporation, and today they want to create a startup. It's a totally different mindset. Yeah, yeah. So um, and also the ecosystem itself has evolved a lot, especially in the last three four years. Um, the uh, amount that was raised by uh, startups in, in France has tripled over the past three years. Uh, and the growth this year is again almost 100% uh, year over year in terms of investments in capital. Yeah. Uh, we should reach um, probably 6 billion uh, euros invested in startups uh, in France in 2019, where we were at 3.5 last year. Got it. And when it comes to investments, I mean, you've been very active too. So, how many how many investments have you done in startups? I'm I'm 
I've invested in about 35 or 40 startups, something like that. Yeah. It's not big amounts because, uh, but usually it's on the very early rounds. You know, it's when uh, the company is very fragile. It's really the seed rounds. Typically, it's a bit, I would assume, on the founder, no? Because it's so early. So, what do you see in the founder that yeah, makes yeah, it yeah. click for you and say, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get it, you know, involved? Yeah, you have to to love the product and see that there is a market for sure. But uh, the main reason why you invest in the company is the founder or well, the founders. And what are like, what is because, the Because, you know, founders have to be, I often say founders are like cats, you know, they have to be animals who uh, will always end up on their feet because it will be bumpy, because uh, they, sometimes they will fall, sometimes they will have to jump. Yeah. And so you want, um, you want founders to, be very very agile and um, and adapt also and be able to pivot when uh, the company is not uh, well the, the business or the service is not working as well as planned you know like for us as i said we we tried six business models i mean this is like pivoting every six months until you find the right business model to grow so that's what you want to to have you may have a direction but then you just uh, do everything you can to um, to end up doing what's needed. And would you say that when you're pivoting, like, let's say, like, six times, and, you know, I've been there uh, as well, so mm -hmm. I understand, you know, what, what is going through that. So I guess my question is, how do you maintain the morale of the people around you up when you're going, you know, through these uh, challenging, you know, uh, changes? Well, first, it was pivoting mainly on the business model. Yeah. So it doesn't change... It didn't change the, the main vision, the main activity, and the, main, the simple fact that we were building uh, a service for people to carpool. Yeah. So we didn't change the activity totally. We simply changed the business model. But then what we can see is like um, with the recent announcements that we've done and the, uh, the focus, the new focus that we are bringing on the buses, you know, with the blah, blah buses that we've launched, um, it is... Um, it is very important to make sure that everybody's got the big vision in mind to follow and to um, to give uh, most of their energy to uh, to the mission and the vision. Of course. So when when the vision is clear uh, and it's uh, you have arguments to make sure that it's clear to everyone, then uh, it is possible to pivot several times, and people follow as well uh, the founders. So is there, I mean, you know this, Frederick, there's not such thing as a straight line as a founder. So I guess <laughs> looking back through all these years, yourself in your journey, has there been a moment that was a little bit darker than others and perhaps a breakdown that led to a breakthrough? Um, so I would say, yeah, the, the years when we had to pivot and change business model every six months were a bit tough. Um the years as well in 2016, 2017, where we actually uh, we had launched 20 countries in three years. So from 2012 and 2000 to 2015, we launched uh, around 20 countries. So it's kind of a sport as well. And then out of those 20 countries, three of them were not performing as uh, as good as we expected, and we had to slow down a bit on those countries. It was also a difficult moment for for us all because. Uh, it was kind of the first time that we had to say, well, you know, for once, we are not opening a new country. We are totally um, 
like uh, lowering the investments yeah. uh, in those countries because it's not rational right now to push with more money. And so we had teams on the ground and then we had to uh, say goodbye as well. And it was really, really, really tough because it was yeah. new. But then with the vision and with the fact that uh, you rationalize when you say, okay, we open 20 countries and 17 of them are working, but three of them are not, um, then it's, it's rational. So it helps. And it's not that bad. 17 out of 20 is not that bad. Absolutely. So to follow up on that, Frederick, what is the um, what have you learned about international expansion? You know, probably some of the people that are right now listening, you know, they're thinking about going overseas and you know opening in other places. So what recommendation would you give to them? Um, partner with people who know the country very well. Don't suppose that you're going there and you will succeed there with your methods. Be ready to adapt your product and your messages because not all the uh, countries will adapt. Oh, not all the cultures will be able to adapt to your service. Got it. Got it. Very, very powerful. So so then going back to, to BlaBlaCar, how big is BlaBlaCar today? So today we are uh, 450 people and we are in 22 countries. We have a community of uh, 80 million people. Um, 75% of our activity is now outside of France. Okay. So it's really, uh, we're now really international. Even though France is very, very big in our numbers, um, it is uh, like, uh, it's only a, a quarter of the activity. Yeah. Um, yeah, and 25 million people travel with BlaBlaCar each quarter. Very cool. Uh, to, to give you a sense of scale, um, Eurostar, has uh, 2.5 million people per quarter. Okay. So BlaBlaCar has 25, so it's 10 times more. And British Airways had, uh, I think, 10 million people per quarter. So we have 2.5 more people traveling with BlaBlaCar than, when, than with uh, British Airways. That's just to give you a sense of scale, because otherwise the millions, it doesn't mean anything. So just to... Of course. No, no, no. That, that serves definitely as a good way to to benchmark for the listeners. So, so I guess the, um, the space as a whole, like the car sharing space and, and what you're seeing, like where do you think the space as a whole is, is heading? So I think what's happening is that we are, four, we, we are witnessing four revolutions at the same time in the mobility sector. It's uh, fascinating. Vehicles and mobility are becoming connected. They are becoming autonomous. They are becoming shared. They're becoming electric. That's four revolutions at the same moment, which is the reason why we see so much innovation in mobility today. Um, only one of those revolutions would al already be a tsunami. But then we have four of them at the same time. So it's incredible. And mobility is so important for, for us all, for all human beings to move around the, their daily lives. That uh, obviously it's... Um, it's a very important uh, part where uh, we can bring new services with so many revolutions. So for now, many, many, many things are moving. It's, uh, it's really a field which is uh, in a total um, transformation. We will see clearer in a few years from now what, what comes out of this. But uh, anyway, I think some... Trends are already being visible, like 
the fact that um, we're going through possibly more mass, you know, mobility as a service. Uh, the fact that we will want to have uh, kind of an Amazon for mobility uh, uh, so that you find all the mobilities in the same space. But also, of course, uh, we still don't, so, so that would be possibly on the uh, on the passenger side, but also we don't really know what will be the effect of autonomous cars. Uh, it can be great or it can be disastrous, actually, uh, because we already have lots of empty cars running around, but... Uh, at least uh, there, there is always one person in the car which wants who wants to move with the car but with autonomous cars you could have cars running in the street and with no one in it so which would be for 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 the environment it could be even worse but then the um, the good news is that i think uh, that uh, autonomous cars or electric cars will need anyway to be shared because we cannot afford, uh, our society, our planet cannot afford to continue to have empty cars running on the roads, uh, whether they are electric, autonomous, or uh, running on gas, uh, or connected or not, they will have to be shared, which is why, um, so at BlaBlaCar, obviously we're focusing on the sharing part, and so carpooling is really a way for people to, to uh, save uh, money and to save energy and to uh, to share the cost um, when uh, passengers and drivers go in the same direction and then they share the cost they also make it so that they reduce the air pollution resulting from moving around with a car uh, last year alone we calculated that we saved 1.6 million tons of co2 thanks to blah blah car so to give you a sense of scale 1.6 million tons of CO2 saved is more than the entire emissions resulting from uh, road traffic in Paris for a year, which is 1.3 million tons of CO2. So last year we saved more CO2 than um, what a city like Paris emits uh, in a year. Got it. I mean, that, that's amazing. You know, that's something that, that I'm seeing entrepreneurs, they're being more conscious about this and the level of impact that they have to the to the world that we live in. So. Um, so kudos to you guys for for doing that. Yeah, and the thing is, in the motivation as well to build it, uh, especially in the early years, was really the fact that uh, uh, having empty cars running on the road was clearly going against uh, possibility for um, being rational on the way we use energy in mobility and in cars. It was a real motivation for me. I found a, an interview that, uh, that was back in 2006 where actually I said, well, if with uh, my project uh, we can save 1% uh, of the CO2 emissions in the world, I will be happy. And um, actually, it's always been a motivation for me and for the, the, the inner team, but we have never been so vocal about it because... Um, we knew that the environmental reason was not initially the reason why people were carpooling. They were carpooling for two main reasons. The first one was uh, to uh, actually save on the on the cost, yeah, because you share the cost. And the second reason was uh, to not drive alone because it's too boring. Um, and um, and then the third reason was because it saves the environment. But we knew it was not sufficient enough for people to do it, so we didn't push that much on it. Got it. Got it. So I guess uh, one question that I typically ask the um, the guests that I have on the show, Frederick, is knowing what you know now. I mean, you've been at it for for all these years. 
Uh, if you had the chance to talk to your younger self, to that Frederick in 2003 that came up with the idea, uh, given all the experience and the wealth of knowledge that you have been able to accumulate now, what, what one piece of business advice would you give to your younger self and why? Uh, don't hesitate to talk about your idea to anyone who's ready to listen and who you think can bring good advice. Because sometimes we're a bit paranoid when we launched a, when we launched an idea. We was like, oh, this is such a good idea. I don't want the others to know about it. <laughs> um, but right. it's, um, right. it's not the way to go. <laughs> because uh, this would be yeah. forgetting that 90% uh, or 99% of the value that, we will be, that you will be creating is around execution. It's not around the idea. So even if someone has the idea, well, good for them, but then they need the, the, the time, the resources, energy to actually make it happen. Um, so, yeah. Got it. And probably at, a, at an early stage, Frederick, and you, know, you, you obviously work with a lot of early stage founders. At an early stage, when you are at that level, where you're, you know, let's say, like at an idea level, um, I think that being able to brainstorm and, and perhaps you know, finding holes and gaps that you didn't know were there uh, I think it's key, but I guess who, like for the people that are listening that are perhaps at that stage, who would you recommend that they should go out to, to kind of like brainstorm and get some feedback? Well, go talk to potential users, uh, potential clients. Uh, go talk to um, anyone who's got an idea about business around you, anyone you know who's doing business, basically. Um Anyone who actually knows the technologies that you will be needing. Very powerful. Yeah, that's, that's a good starting point, I would say. And then uh, also, if you have uh, someone you know who is financing projects, uh, you can go see if, uh, if they would see a business model and how it would work. And then also the, the best thing is if you know an entrepreneur not, uh, not far, you can reach and, and they have time have time for you then go talk to them because an entrepreneur usually has all this in mind like uh, they, they see the customer point of view the investor point of view the um the media point of view the uh, technology point of view they they have to otherwise uh, when you're an entrepreneur you have to do a bit of everything and you make a puzzle with everything you learned so if you have the chance to be able to talk to one they'll be able to help you make the puzzle happen of course, of course. And, and, and just, you know, you were talking about investors. How early do you think the founder should establish their relationship with investors? As soon as possible. Simply because investors invest on movies and not on pictures. Yeah. When investors invest, usually they like to see that they've seen the same person one or two years ago. This person was saying that they would be doing this, and then a year after, they have actually done it, which means they are executing on their plan, and this will, this will uh, convince investors to follow you. So even if you don't, if you you are not raising money, it's a good idea to, if you have the chance, go and see investors, tell them about your plan, tell them that maybe you're not ready to raise money from them at this moment, but you will be in a year or two from now, and then. Uh, when you meet them again a year or two later on, uh, they'll be knowing you for a year or two. Yeah. And so they will have a bit of the movie. At least they'll have several pictures 
Of course, building trust is uh, super important. So, Frederick, for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? I would say on um, yeah on LinkedIn, even though it's like very crowded. <laughs> um, yeah. I but, hear you. Um, yeah. And do you have a Twitter, Twitter, for example, as well? Twitter, but then I yeah I don't go that often that yeah on Twitter. I think when I when I publish on LinkedIn, it automatically publishes on Twitter. Okay. Because I uh, maybe I'm lazy, but I, I try to synchronize my accounts so that I don't need to uh, to send the same information uh, over all the channels by doing three things. But I when I write on LinkedIn, I think it publishes automatically on on Twitter and on Facebook. Very cool. Well, then people know that they can find you on LinkedIn. Well, thank you, Frederick. Really appreciate having you on the show today. Thank you very much. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.